Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, I'm uh, joined today by Dr. Michael Bonello, who is a movement disorder specialist working at the Walton Centre. Hello, Michael. Hi, John. Thanks for asking me to speak. Oh, no problem. So, a bit of a sign of the times here. This is a, 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 a socially distanced uh, podcast recording today. Um, so, apologies if the sound quality isn't uh, up to the usual standards. Um, but, Michael, today I was going to talk to you about um, your approach to a patient who presents with a movement disorder. So this is something you will see day in, day out in clinic. Um, Before we go into too much detail, can you just tell me about what your overall approach is with these kinds of uh, patients? Um, So, uh, thanks, John. Um, So, patients, uh, when patients are referred to with a movement disorder in the general neurology clinic, uh, most of the time, uh, the approach is very similar to other uh, neurological patients. So uh, it's important to get a detailed history and, uh, and examine the patient. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, uh, what you're trying to do in a general neurology patient is uh, when there is a neurological deficit, you're trying to localize the lesion to uh, a specific area in the brain. And then following localization and clinical examination, you're uh, going on to try and identify the etiology of the problem. So uh, the principles usually lie very similar in a movement disorder perspective. However, what is slightly different in in movement disorders is is most of the time you're not dealing with a single point area in the brain that's causing the problem, but you're dealing with circuitry of the brain. So you're probably dealing with uh, with circuitry of the basal ganglia, brainstem, thalamus, cerebellar uh, cerebellar circuitry, and and even uh, circuitry going uh, higher up to the cortical area. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you're seeing someone with movement disorders, it's important to try and characterize their movement. So generally speaking, in a movement disorders world, we t- speak about the axis one uh, or the first step of, uh, clinic, uh, of the clinical examination. And that is characterizing the movement, trying to identify which body parts are moving, mm-hmm. uh, what type of abnormal movements we're seeing, and then how all of this has started, kind of the temporal patterns and other associated features. Okay, so what are the main distinctions in terms of type of movements that you would see? So, generally speaking, uh, when you see a movement or a body part that is moving abnormally, it's either moving too quickly or moving too slowly. Mm-hmm. So we l- really normally try and distinguish um, these movements into hyperkinetic movement uh, disorders or hypokinetic movement disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, Generally speaking, uh, when we speak about hyperkinetic movement disorders, you could classify them in uh, uh, five main big subgroups. And uh, hypokinetic movement disorders are normally classified as a one big subgroup uh, under the term of bradykinesia. Okay. So let's start with the hyperkinetic movement disorders or uh, patients in whom the problem is too much movement. Uh, You mentioned there's five main subgroups. Um, Can you just expand on that? Tell us about what those different subgroups are. Yeah, so the five main subgroups uh, that we normally use are, are, are tremor, uh, dystonia, chorea, myoclonus, and tics. Uh, most of the other uh, movement disorders that, you'll, uh, that you might encounter in, in your reading and uh, in, other, in medical textbooks can be subclassified in some of these subgroups. Mm. Um, what I wanted to do maybe is we could uh, discuss each one of them yeah, uh, one okay. by one. 
So let's start with, tre with uh, tremor. So yeah. tremor of a body part can be classified as a rhythmic oscillatory movement of that particular body type. So at, for a movement to be classified as a tremor, it needs to have a separate frequency, a separate uh, rhythm to it, and a separate uh, amplitude. Mm -hmm. Without uh, actually having these three features to it, you cannot really say it's a tremulous mu movement. Okay. So most people will have heard about uh, Parkinson's disease causing tremor. And when we're actually seeing a patient who, who presents with a tremor, our main aim is try to try and, uh, ensure that they have a tremor or it's not some of the other movement disorders that we will describe in the future. Mm. Uh, we try to identify which body parts are trembling and on which positions they, are, they, are, they have the tremor. So if we, for example, use Parkinson's disease as an example, we know that tremor in Parkinson's disease is found as a, rest, as, as a resting tremor and normally involves uh, the hands as a pill rolling fashion. Uh, it has a certain frequency with it. So when we're examining the patient, we try and get the patient to relax um, uh, in a, allow the hands to uh, be in a resting position and observe the patient in that way. So uh, you should expect a tremor that comes on when they're at rest that would be consistent with something like Parkinson's disease. Okay. What are the other common causes of tremor that you see? Uh, so, yeah, so some of the other causes that we see are, uh, so, so some of the other common causes uh, that are seen in clinic include uh, things like uh, benign essential tremor, um, which uh, is the commonest cause of tremor in the general population. And, that, and these type of tremors are normally more uh, postural in nature, and they normally involve um, upper, limb, uh, upper, uh, upper limb tremor on certain positions. Yeah. Um, then you've got other things like physiological tremors, cerebellar tension tremors, and some other rare types of tremors um, that can be seen in other uh, movement disorders. Okay, so that's, uh, that's tremor. Um, you mentioned another subtype of hyperkinetic movement disorder is dystonia. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yes, so uh, dystonia uh, comes from the term abnormal tone. And essentially what it, uh, what it means is a sustained abnormal tone of body parts surrounding, uh, agon so surrounding certain surrounding joints. So you get both agonists and antagonists um, continuing contraction on each other, uh, resulting in kind of abnormal postures and sometimes bringing on movements that can mimic some of the other movement disorders. So for example, uh, one of the commonest causes of uh, dystonia is, something, is cervical dystonia, mm. where essentially you get abnormal tone of the neck muscles uh, and you get both the anterior compartment of the neck as well as the posterior compartment of the neck that are um, contracting against each other. Okay. Um, so sometimes the presentation of cervical dystonia can be that of a tremor that we've already described. So it's important when we see someone who has a movement disorder, we're trying to characterize all the movement disorders that they have. So it's not uncommon that you see someone in a clinic who has neck tremor, but if you actually, so, but you need to dig further and you might identify that the patient also has an underlying dystonia, has causing a dystonic tremor. And the treatment in that situation is not treating the tremor, but actually treating the dystonia. Okay, so, so I guess um, although there are these subcategories, they're not mutually exclusive and you will see overlap between, between them. Does dystonia tend to just affect single body parts, sorry, single parts of the body, or, or can it be a more generalised uh, phenomena? 
So the Sony has quite a complex clinical uh, classification, and then these we try and classify it um, uh, using the same principles that we that I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, when we see someone has dystonia, we normally uh, uh, we try and classify it according to the body distribution, mm -hmm. the temporal pattern on how it how it presented, and the age at onset, and uh, other associated features. So dystonia can vary from focal, um, like what we mentioned in cervical dystonia, or to uh, segmental, where it involves um, multiple body parts that are attached to each other. So, for example, some people can have facial dystonia and neck dystonia, and that, that would be a, a type of orofacial uh, neck dystonia called the segmental dystonia. And then it can be a generalized dystonia, so it can involve all, all, the, patient, all, the, all the patient's body. Okay. Um, this is quite a useful distinction because most of the time, although it's not exclusive, um, focal dystonia is more of an idiopathic cause for the dystonia, whilst the generalized dystonia, you're thinking more of an inherited or a, or a, a neurodegenerative or a, a, an inflammatory cause for the dystonia. Excellent. So moving along, um, which was the next uh, subgroup uh, that you mentioned? So it was Korea, is that correct? So, so I mentioned myoclonus. Oh, myoclonus, yeah, go with that one, yeah. And uh, myoclonus are uh, uh, sudden unpredictable shock-like jerks that can happen at any part of the body. Mm -hmm. And most people think of myoclonus as uh, quite rare, but actually it's very, very common. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, uh, the way we look at myoclonus, again, is, is, is looking at uh, the body distribution, uh, the, how it all comes on, and other associated features. And most people would have had experience of myoclonus in their life. If I give you an example, uh, most people, most of us have had hiccups, mm -hmm. and uh, hiccups are essentially myoclonic jerks of the diaphragm. Yeah. The same thing uh, people experience as the, when they're going to sleep. Some people can uh, ha might have noticed sudden jerk-like movements of the number of body parts, and these are called hypnic jerks. So these are all examples of the, of uh, myoclonus. Myoclonus is not necessarily pathological. Mm -hmm. However, myoclonus can uh, come on in a, in a number of metabolic conditions. So uh, a number of people with, for example, hepatic encephalopathy can show myoclonus as well as other causes of encephalopathy. And in these kind of situations can affect a number of different body parts. Good stuff. Sorry. Um, no worries. So uh, the next one you mentioned was Korea. Um, so uh, are you able to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so, uh, the reason I leave Korea to last is, is that is how my brain normally thinks. I normally try and identify if there is any tremor, dystonia, and myoclonus underneath, and if, uh, if the movement doesn't fit any of these uh, movement disorders, uh, my next step is, is this a Korea for movement disorder? Mm. Korea is interesting because it's, uh, it essentially incorporates a big umbrella term of a number of different movement disorders. But the, mo but the main link between them is that the movement is irregular, purposeless, and, un and unpredictable. So uh, different types of the body can be affected with Korea. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, going through the medical textbooks, you, uh, most people will find other terms, including things like atetosis, balismus, and dyskinesias. And they all really are uh, describing forms of Korea. So atetosis is, is more of a slower... Um, slower writing quality of the movement that normally affects the upper limbs and the lower limbs. So uh, most people will have slow movement of the fingers. And that is essentially a form of Korea. 
Balismus, on the other hand, is more of a career of the proximal limb. So the movements are much more uh, wild. They're much more, uh, they're, they're, they're much more definite, as they can be much more dramatic in nature. Okay. Um, dyskinesia is a big umbrella term, which is really going out of favor, at least in the movement disorder world, because all it means is, is abnormal movements, literally. Um, most people think of dyskinesia as uh, drug-induced choreiform movements. Um, so we see, for example, in, uh, it's, it's used to describe Parkinson's disease uh, medication side effects, which can cause drug-induced choreiform uh, movements, and these are called drug-induced dyskinesias. Mm, okay. And uh, you then mentioned uh, the final one was tics, um, which, so you're able to tell us uh, the nature of a tic movement disorder. Yeah, tics is probably um, one of those movement disorders that is the outlier in this situation because um, uh, uh, there's a lot of debate on whether tics are actually completely um, involuntary or they, some people classify them as semi-voluntary. So, uh, so this is because most tick movements can be suppressed for a short period of time, and indeed that is their defining factor. Mm. So um, uh, it's not a, so uh, tick, uh, a tick movement disorder can affect all parts of the body, and it can uh, be classified as either simple or complex because it can either involve simple movements or quite complex movements. But in all of the clinical assessment in these type of movements, most patients will tell you that they feel uh, tick, uh, they, they'll feel a strange sensation of movement, they'll feel a sensation building up. They can suppress it and maybe stop it for a short period of time. The difficulty in tick disorders is unfortunately this comes, this, uh, however, comes back with a vengeance and the patient will have to um, move afterwards with a stronger in a stronger fashion movement the so to some of the hyperkinetic so uh, the reason that tick disorder is a bit of an outlier is the that it's momentarily suppressible whereas the other ones are involuntary movements uh, for which the patient is unable to suppress even for a second is that is that right that's yeah that's it okay good stuff now moving on to the the opposite of the hyperkinetic so the hypokinetic or the patients who have a, a deficiency in, in the amount of movement they have. I mean, so on surface level, this may be a bit simpler because you said there's really just one big category, but I suspect that simplicity is going to be short-lived. So um, can you describe to us how you approach the patient who has too little movement? Yes. So people who have little, uh, who have little movement, they're normally classified as being bradykinetic. And essentially what that means is they are slow. Um, the, when you see someone who is bradykinetic, most people will think of Parkinson's disease as their, uh, or Parkinsonism as their uh, main differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, the phenomenology of Parkinsonism is, in a way, a bit simpler than some of the other complex hyperkinetic movement disorders, um, because uh, it's generally speaking, you're generally looking for um, slowness in upper limbs, lower limbs, in their gait. Um, uh, slowness in how they write, um, rigidity uh, in both their upper limbs, lower limbs, um, a, change, a, a change in their gait, maybe uh, they're increasingly stiff when they're doing certain things, they are unable to, they're losing increasing dexterity in, the, in, their, in their upper limbs. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenge really comes is to actually identify the etiology in these situations because um, we know that the most common cause of uh, bradykinesia is uh, Parkinson's disease, but uh, there are a number of different other differential diagnoses in this type of conditions. You've talked about uh, patients with hyperkinetic movement disorder and hypokinetic. When you're in clinic and you're examining the patient, can you just talk us through a general routine you might have in order to help you elicit these signs? Yeah, so um, uh, the, when you're examining someone with, uh, with movement disorder, it's important to have a routine and, uh, so that you can get, uh, so you don't get certain important uh, signs that you, would, they, that you might normally miss. Uh, in your examination. Uh, the first important thing on the clinical examination is actually gait. And gait gives you a lot of information because it relaxes the patient and it allows uh, certain movements that the patient might be, sub- might be trying to suppress uh, by, uh, so that the, the patient might be trying to suppress uh, to come out and flow a bit easier. Mm-hmm. So a lot of movements are actually, uh, do flow out easier when the patient is relaxed when the patient is able to not uh, contract their muscles. Um, so gait is my initial go-to because it gives you so much information because you can't see whether the patient is moving too much or moving too little. Mm-hmm. So following assessment of gait, what I normally do is I look at the patient's face and look at the patient's size. Um, look at the extent of eye movements as well as the as the movements or paucity of movements around the face. Mm-hmm. I normally look at the patient's mouth and then uh, I move on for on a, an inspection of their upper limbs. So I normally like to look at the patient at rest and see if they have any extra movement. So I normally try and make sure that the arms are supported to ensure that they are not contracted in, in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this helps normally bring out things like resting tremors. Uh, it's, in a movement disorder, it's quite common to see us distract the patient. And this, again, can help the patient relax certain body parts to bring them on. So, for example, a patient who has Parkinson's disease, we normally ask the patient to close, the, to close their eyes and come uh, from 20 down to 1 in, 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 loudly. So what that, so what that results is, is the patient focuses on the, on the this cognitive task while relaxing the body, and that can sometimes bring out certain things like resting tremors. Okay. The next step at that point, I normally uh, ask the patient to... Uh, so I normally look for bradykinesia uh, and essentially ask the patient to open and close their fingers as fast and, and as wide as they can. And then normally then, uh, I normally do this for about 10, uh, 10 seconds and observe uh, if there is any decrease in amplitude and there any slowness in this repetitive movement. I would then move on to ask the patient to make a fist and open it and again repeat this for about uh, 10 seconds. I would assess the patient's arms in, uh, in a horizontal position in two different postures. Uh, at that point, I would assess the patient's uh, tone uh, and perform the rest of the neurological examination. Okay. The same thing could be done with the lower limbs. So you can ask the patient to stamp on the floor, uh, again, looking at the, uh, at the amplitude and the frequency of, uh, of, the, of the feet stamp, stamping and feet stomping, and you can ask the patient to also tap on the floor uh, with their feet as well. I normally at that point would ask the patient if there's any tasks that bring the the movements on. Because, for example, in 
certain types of tremor, you might, uh, the patient might notice that the tremor is, is worse when they're eating or drinking. And then we can practice some of these. So I normally get the patient to write. We normally uh, ask them to draw a spiral. And, uh, and we practice drinking from a cup as well as some, uh, sometimes we, we, we have certain dextrous, we have certain, um, sometimes we try certain tasks to try and bring out uh, dexterity and try and identify abnormal movements. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.